In our series on the book of Galatians, we have been covering ground at a fairly quick pace, or at least we've covered a lot of ground each week. Today we're going to slow down so that we might savor and admire and apply that which I hope that we've discovered up to this point. Um, About halfway on the 100-mile drive between Colorado Springs and Buena Vista, Colorado, which is the place where Mandy and I began our married life together about 21 years ago, um, you arrive at Wilkerson Pass, which is at about 9,500 feet in elevation. You've been climbing the whole way out of Colorado Springs, which is at about 6,000 feet, or 7,000 feet. Um, and cresting the pass, you're, you're treated to one of my favorite views, a spectacular scene of, of South Park, the grassland flats that go on for miles out in front of you, which still have herds of buffalo on them, and beyond them, the collegiate peaks of the Rocky Mountains, uh, whose rocky and snow-covered grandeur shoots up to the skies and doesn't seem to stop. It's a breathtaking view. There's a scenic outlook off to the side of the highway that invites the speedy travelers to turn off the road and take in this view. And that's what I'd like for us to do this morning in Galatians. To get off the road for a minute, to slow down, to ponder and marinate in the richness of the gospel of God that Paul has been setting forth before us in these first two chapters, and to think a little bit about its meaning in our lives. To do this, we're going to solely deal with one verse, chapter 2, verse 21 in Galatians, which says this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We've covered this in the series before, but by affirming another standard of worthiness, the Jewish law, Peter and Antioch and the missionaries that are causing trouble in Galatia are constraining the grace of God to the worthy as defined by the Jewish tradition. And to constrain God's gift in this way is the same as rejecting it, Paul says. That's another way that you could paraphrase, I do not nullify the grace of God, is I do not reject the gift of God. This gift is defined precisely by its being given to people without any calibration to the prior worth of its recipients, that worth based on the Jewish law or anything else that one might use to try to accrue a sense of worth in your life, money, fame, success, etc., And this was Paul's own story, as we looked at at the end of chapter 1. It's also confirmed by the Galatians' experience as well, as Paul goes on to say in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. In verse 2 there, he says, Did you, Galatians, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the message received in faith or the hearing of faith? And again in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do that by works of the law? or by the hearing of faith, or the message received in faith. This faith, which we saw last week, is what brings us into the category of those described rightly by the words that have the same root, dekai, which means justification, or justified, or righteous, or righteousness. This faith is given in the Christ event, Jesus' death and resurrection, as it is proclaimed as this event is is proclaimed by people like the Apostle Paul. 
And it's not the condition for God's granting the gift, but rather it is the recognition that the gift has in fact been given. That one's life has in fact been reconstituted by the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Christ event. And Paul will go on to say, not only is this confirmed in my own experience, as he tells his story at the end of chapter 1, not only is this confirmed in your experience, Galatians, as he says in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, but as he begins in verse 6 of chapter 3, this is also affirmed by the writings of Scripture, by which, of course, he means the Old Testament. And this is what we'll begin to explore next week together and get into a bit of the weeds on how one understands God's statements about the Jewish law and his promises to Abraham and how do these things fit together. But Paul's saying all of these things point to the same conclusion. This gift that God has given is given without any regard to who you were before you received the gift. That's incredible and it's astonishing. That's what we want to reflect on a little bit more today together. It's a gift that's given to the unworthy. And this makes it shocking and radical. And it's this reality of the gift that makes it possible that it can create new communities of people who are bound together in love and not in a competitive relationship and dividing one another up. Because all who have received this gift are equally unworthy. And those systems in the world that divide us up into a thousand different categories, each receiving certain kinds of value or no value at all, those systems have been relegated or relativized by the way, the new way in which God is working in Jesus Christ. And Paul says to suggest otherwise, to erect any other standard of worth in the community of God's people is to reject the gift. It's not just a kind of distinguish, it's not just a, a modification of the gift, it's actually a rejection of the gift. You cannot live in both worlds, Paul says. Either you yield to the God of grace, you receive the gift of God, and you live in accord with the truth of the gospel in every aspect of your life, thus relativizing all other criteria of worth, or you admit the fundamental relevance and importance of some cultural or ethnic norm or criteria of worth, and so desert the God of grace, saying at the same time that you do that, that the death of Christ, as he says in verse 21, was for no purpose. It was not essential. It was empty. It was vain. In vain. And this, Galatians, is what they, you, are beginning to do, he says, in verse 6, why are you so quickly deserting the God who called you by his grace in Christ? Why? But this, Paul says, is what I will not do. I will not reject the gift of God by imposing other standards. And the entire letter of Galatians, from cover to cover, the whole six chapters, is an attempt by the Apostle Paul to keep the churches in Galatia from falling prey to this temptation. Don't do it. Don't reject this gift. All right. So those are, that's mostly stuff that we've covered up to this point in the series. But I said I wanted us to get out of the car today, to stop, to look, to contemplate, to ponder. At the heart of Christianity, at the heart of the gospel, is the reception of a gift. Let's not forget that. It's a gift that comes from God to us. A gift that God himself initiated. 
It's a gift that means everything. It's a gift that informs everything. It's a gift that changes everything. Changes everything about the world, about what's possible, and about your life personally. This is the heart of the matter. The gift of God is the fire that warms us. It's the the fire that melts us, the fire that enlivens us. Remove or, or reject the gift of God in your life, and you have drained the life out of the system. All that remains is an inanimate corpse, a riverbed without water, a machine without fuel, a tradition without life, an empty shell. And for far, far too many in history and today, this is all that Christianity actually is. We go through the motions. We go through the rituals. We dress up to come to a church on a Sunday. But that's all somewhat exterior to us. What really matters, what really moves us, the real animation of our lives is what's going on in our careers or our romantic life or our investments, etc. William Wilberforce, who was known, of course, for his work as a member of parliament, he became a member of parliament at 27, in the abolition of the slave trade in England, which he spent his life doing and accomplished by the end of it. But he wrote a book in in 1797, and it was called A Practical View of Christianity. And it was a book that he wrote to address a culture where Christianity had largely become like wallpaper, It was in the house, you could see it everywhere, but it had little impact on what people actually thought or did. Why was this the case? In Wilberforce's own words. But the grand radical defect in the practical system of these nominal Christians is their forgetfulness of all the peculiar doctrines of the religion which they profess. A little dated language for us, but essentially what he says is they had forgotten the gift. They had forgotten this gift at the heart of our faith. They had rejected the gift, and so there was no real life in them. There was a lot of activity and a lot of industry, but there was no real life because this gift, the grace of God, the love of God, creates life and sustains life and moves us to life and resurrects life. And to miss this gift is to miss the whole thing. To grasp it is to run and not grow weary. To walk and not be faint. The gift that Paul will not reject is quite simply the death of Christ, as he says, for me. We saw last week in verse 20. Christ didn't die, he says, for no purpose. What then did he die for? What is this gift that is at the heart of the Christian faith? What does this gift of Christ's death actually bring in our lives? We just want to offer, again, we're slowing down, three simple observations coming out of Galatians up to this point. As we stand at this lookout and try to take in this amazing view of the gospel of God and its beauty. First, forgiveness. Forgiveness in the end of accusation. If you've got your Bible open, go with me back to verse 4 of chapter 1. This is when Paul begins to talk about this gift. It's in his opening greeting. He can't contain himself. He brings it up at the very beginning. He says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. 
Why did Christ die? For our sins. Paul doesn't spell out a theology of the atonement here, which is that branch of Christian theology that reflects on the means by which the death of Christ actually does deal with the problem of sin. And we won't flush it out in a substantial way now either. But I want you to know that sin is our fundamental problem. Your problem and my problem. Our deepest problem is the problem of sin. In J. and D. Anderson's 1971 book, Christianity and Comparative Religion, he notes, quote, Sin is, in fact, a universal sickness, and man's deepest need is to understand this and to find the cure. This sickness is is our rebellion from the will of God, our utterly inescapable self-centeredness that destroys us and that destroys the relationships into which we have been called and so rips apart the fabric of humanity. Sin is taking the masterpiece of God's design and making and cutting it up with a knife and throwing globs of black tar on it to mess it up. And we, you and I, are that masterpiece. We are made in the image of God. So sin is a kind of self-mutilation. It's a kind of cutting in the spiritual realm which destroys us and takes our life away. When Paul says that Christ died for our sins, he's saying that, that this death is the solution to the problem of sin in our lives. It deals effectively with sin, our sin, your sin, my sin, and ushers in the reality of divine forgiveness which brings an end to accusation. And this is so important because we all live with this finger pointing at us again and again and again. You know it. You've got it in your life. I've got it in mine. The way that the enemy of God is talked about is as the accuser. He loves to accuse you, to say you're no good, you're nothing, you could never be worthy of the love of God, you could never receive something like this. Look at what you've done. Look at who you are. A friend of mine, a pastor in the city, shared a story recently about preaching one day in Boston about seven years ago, and an older Jewish man walked in to the congregation. He looked lost. He stayed around, and at the end of the service, he came up and he gave my friend a note. When my friend opened the note, it said, I'd love to talk to you more about this Christianity thing. I meant to go to a synagogue today and thought that was here. Would you please give me a call or email me? And, and, and the, the, my friend emailed this man, and And it took five days for my friend to hear back from him. And the man emailed him back and said, you know, actually the day that I came to visit your church, I left and I had a heart attack and I'm in the hospital. Would you come and visit me? And so with fear and trepidation, my friend, this pastor, goes to the hospital to meet this man and begins to talk with him. And this man asks questions about their Christian faith. And in the course of the discussion, he reveals, and my friend just kind of with fear and trepidation says, can I pray for you? Can I talk to you about this? And he does, and this man says to him, I want to know, because he had lived a life, he, would, he was in the Israeli special forces, and he had a long list of deeds that he had done that were nagging at his conscience, that were causing him to wonder, could God love me? Could God forgive me? And that was the question that the man wanted my friend to answer. Could God really forgive me? Because I know my past and I know what I've done. And in the course of that conversation, this man came to experience This is miraculous, isn't it? To to experience the beauty of the forgiveness of God, which is part of the gift of God in the death of Christ. And after my friend prayed, this man then on the spot prayed 
and thanked Jesus for forgiving him for his sins. And when it was over, he handed him his yarmulke. And my friend still has the yarmulke and said, I guess I won't be needing this anymore, will I? The forgiveness of God, the end of accusation. I don't know where it is that you live under accusation in your life, but I'm pretty confident that you do. Because that's what the devil loves to do to you. To bind you, to remind you, to cause you to be unable to let go of those parts of your life that you're ashamed of, that you know were wrong, that burden you with guilt. Let me say this, who knew guilt? Paul knew guilt. Paul said, look, I was an enemy of the church. I was fighting against the church of God, and yet God met me through the gift. God gave me this gift I didn't deserve. God forgave me. God dealt with my sins, and so I can be free. I can enter into a clean, I can have a clean conscience. This is the book of Hebrews. It talks about the death of Christ. It's so powerful that it can cleanse the conscience. It can renew us in complete ways so that we no longer have to live under accusation. That's amazing. I will not reject the gift of God, the gift which is the death of Christ for our sins that brings forgiveness, that breaks the finger-pointing of accusation in my life, Paul says. Back to 1.4 for the second observation. is If it's forgiveness and the end of accusation, the second observation here is deliverance and the end of enslavement. Paul says that Christ who gave himself for our sins, why did he do that? Why did he deal with sins? He says, he goes on, to deliver us from the present evil age. This is about liberation and deliverance, this gift. The present evil age is the world in sin, in rebellion. It's the world of greed and lust and control. The world that uses others to our own advantage. It's the world that exploits the poor and the vulnerable and pays lip service and only lip service to justice and peace. And its end, this world's end, will be an end in wrath and judgment from a holy God who loves his world too much to allow evil to go on forever. There is a day coming, God says. I've fixed a day when I will return and eradicate that which I have already defeated in the cross. And what Paul celebrates in the death of Christ is that you and I and he have been delivered out of this present evil age. The power of sin was too strong. The chains of sin bound us. They held us. They caused us to be slaves. And this death, this death, this very specific death, registered a violent disruption, much like the earthquake that opens the prison gates for Peter and later for Paul. The death of Jesus disrupts the world and so opens the gates of the present evil age that we might be delivered out of it, liberated, rescued, and freed. As 1 Thessalonians, as Paul says there, that Jesus, we wait for Jesus who delivers us, he says, from the wrath to come. Jesus causes us to be plucked out of a world that is dedicated to evil and rebellion against God and brings us to a place of freedom. And this freedom is now ours. It's freedom from every selfish orientation in your soul. It's freedom from every addiction that drives you into nothingness, that leaves you feeling empty after you have indulged it. It's freedom from all kinds of powers that woo you and long for you to get in line with them, to dedicate your life to becoming the best or better or bigger or stronger. It's liberation from all of those things. You are no longer enslaved. Do you and I continue to face those powers, to face this present evil age? 
Do we fight it? Of course we do. Paul at the end of Ephesians says, look, this is a warfare. It's a battle out there, and you are fighting in it. Stand firm, he says. Stand firm in the grace of God. Stand firm in the power of God. Stand firm by the shield of faith. Stand firm by the helmet of salvation. Stand firm by the truth of this gift in your life. With it, you will fight and you will prevail. You have been freed. I will not reject, Paul says, the gift of God which is forgiveness and the end of accusation, which is deliverance and the end of enslavement. Enslavement to a different kind of humanity that doesn't lead to life. And if you're sitting here and you're feeling ashamed because you're still enslaved, let me say to you that Jesus is merciful and gracious. Jesus does not push or does not blow out a smoldering wick. He doesn't crush a bruised reed. He is gentle and meek and lowly to come alongside of you. My point in declaring this is not to make you feel bad about your ongoing struggles with this present evil age, but it is rather to give you a glimpse into the freedom that is rightfully yours in Jesus Christ, that you have been liberated, and whatever that power is that causes you to return to the vomit again and again, that power does not have power over you. That power is less than the power of Christ in you, and you are free to live a liberated life of love. Use your freedom, Paul says later in Galatians 5, not as an excuse for the flesh, not to indulge your pride or your lust or your, your hunger for power, but use it, he says, for love. Through love, serve one another. That is why you've been set free. Thirdly, this gift, forgiveness, which brings the end of accusation, deliverance, which brings the end of enslavement, And this is the gift of life that brings the end of disconnection. What do I mean by disconnection? The problem of sin is that we've been disconnected. How many of you have been out on a day-long trip with a cell phone whose battery is running low? It's a tragedy. You can't get life back into it, and you're concerned about it. We'll take that silly metaphor to think about your life outside of God. It's a disconnection from the God of life, the God of power, the God of love. And what is this gift most of all? And this is so beautiful. This is right before our verse where Paul says, I won't reject the grace, the gift of God or the grace of God. He says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. We we hit this last week, but we needed to hit it again. I have been crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is my life? What is this gift? At its basic core, what is this gift? It is none other than the gift of God himself, the very person of God. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is God himself in the person of the the second person, the Son of God, who lives in me. Well, what does he say in chapter 3? He says to the Galatians, did you receive the Spirit? By works of the law or by hearing of faith, the message that produces faith. You receive the Spirit through faith, the Spirit of God. That becomes the theme of Galatians, as we'll see as we dig into the book further, especially in chapters 5 and 6. The Spirit of God is the very person, presence, and power of God. That life has been poured into you. Your life is now very much the life of God. The gift of God at its core is not just forgiveness of sins. It's not just deliverance from the present evil age. It is the gift of God himself. The life of God in you. That's incredible and amazing. William Cooper was a poet. 
a, a brilliant poet, a poet who was plagued by depression and despair, who was in, institutionalized three times in his life, a poet who was part of the circle of friends with William Wilberforce and John Newton called the Clapham Circle or the Clapham Sect. He was part of that group and he was brilliant. He wrote this poem called The Task in 1785. It was six books and in the fifth book he says, he writes these words, From thee is all that soothes the life of man, his high endeavor and his glad success, his strength to suffer and his will to serve. But O thou bounteous giver of all good, thou art of all thy gifts, thyself the crown. Thou art of all thy gifts, thyself the crown. What is Paul celebrating? What is the gift that Paul rejoices in? It is the gift now that I have died, my old life in sin, enslavement, I have died with Christ and I've been raised to something new, so much so that this new thing is animated and enlivened, is reconnected with the God who made me. The God who is indestructible life and power and holiness and freedom. The God who is love and mercy and righteousness and truth. That God is now living inside of me and living inside of you. That is the gift. We're on the past, remember, looking out at the mountains, going up to the heavens. This is the height of the mountains that that reach the heavens. It is that the life of God who made you and knows you, to whom you know that you belong, that life has been poured out into you by the very gift of God in the death of his son. And there's nothing that can take that life away. There's nothing that can slow that life down. Now you might ask, what is your practical application, Mark? You're just kind of rising. Well, look, tomorrow afternoon when you're sitting in the office and when you're feeling discouraged, and you will this week, and I will too, I can think of nothing better than to recall to mind the gift of God in Christ that forgives you of your sins. Siri, I'm being very serious. Far too much of our experience, of our lived life, has this gift out on the periphery, out in the distance, far away from our emotions and our affections and our will and our actions and our understanding. I want you this week to bring this gift back to the center where it belongs. So when you're in the office tomorrow and you're struggling to make sense of how the world is working, when you're fighting with that addiction that keeps getting after you, remember your sins have been forgiven. Remember you have been delivered from every other power in this present evil age. And remember that in you is the life of God himself. And it doesn't matter if you feel like it. It's true. And this is what Paul says, I will not reject. I will not move away from this gift. This gift is everything to me. I didn't deserve it. I, don't, I was an enemy. I was running the other direction. And you were too. And that's what enables this beautiful gift to create a new kind of community where there are no levels, but we are one in Jesus. We are full of love for one another in Jesus. We are enlivened by the God of life. Don't reject this gift. Hold fast to it. Because in it there is life. And there is life nowhere else. Christ did not die for no purpose. But he died to set you free. He died to cleanse you. And he died to pour out life, his own life, into you as a result of God's miraculous gift. Amen? Amen. Amen.